Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're discussing unsolved mysteries, new and old. Across the table from me, I have Jason Creekmore, resident man of mystery and super sleuth. Jason, how are you today? I am ready, Shannon, to discover the truth. Let's figure it out. I think <laughs> at least here, on a few of these. Here on Slapdash, we like to get to the bottom of things. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. <laughs> so we have several different mysteries uh, that we're going to discuss today. We each chose three that we thought were interesting. And I think I'm going to start things off here. And it's a very interesting story, one that's been with me since I was a, a young kid that I read about. And quite honestly, something that terrified me when I was a little bit younger. Jason, have you ever heard of the case of Jack the Ripper? Oh, yes. Yes. I've, I've read some articles and actually read a couple of uh, books. One was like a historical fiction book about Jack the Ripper. And then the other was just like a, a, a novel that was based, you know, sort of on those uh, events. So, yeah, that's that's a really interesting case. And I know one that just kind of to this day continues to baffle uh, authorities. It does. Uh, they thought they had it figured out a few years ago, actually. But there's still so much debate around this story. It's still continuing to interest people. So let's just hop right into it and talk a little bit about this mysterious figure known as Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer active in the impoverished areas in and around the Whitechapel district of London in 1888. Other than Jack the Ripper, the killer was also called the Whitechapel murderer and leather apron. I'm not sure why it was called leather apron. Leather apron? But to me, I, I had that, not heard of that one. That that sounds um, it's kind of morbid a little I bit. But I'm not sure why. Something about that just rings <laughs> yeah. kind of kind of strange and, and I, scary a little I bit. I thought you were going to say leather face when you said leather, and I was like, "Where's he going with this I, leather I, apron?" Huh? I think that's why it's so um, why it's so <laughs> chilling because it, it it makes me think of that Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. a little bit. You know, leather apron, leather face, uh, pretty similar. Uh, the killer primarily targeted women uh, who lived and worked in the slums of the East End of London. And he killed at least five women and possibly up to 11 because uh, there were five that they identified were could be traced back to one person. But there were actually 11 who were killed in that area. Unfortunately, they didn't necessarily link it back to Jack the Ripper, but it was certainly possible. So the removal of uh, and, and Jason, this gets a little dark. I'm going <laughs> to I'm just going to put this blanket warning out here a little bit. Well, he is a serial. Killer. This is a little different. <laughs> All right. So he had a certain M.O., a a certain way that he did things, and he removed the organs of his victims. Uh, So from three of the victims, he he did this, and this led some to believe that he had surgical and maybe anatomical knowledge, which has led to a lot of the theories around who he possibly could have been, because there were a limited amount of people in the area at that time who had medical experience. So you can kind of draw a circle around those folks and think, well, maybe, you know, all of these are candidates, and there's hundreds of candidates, and we're going to get to this in, in just a bit. There's so many possibilities out there. But one thing that started to stir around the time that Jack the Ripper was on the loose were, were these letters that would come in to the media. And this was in the late 1800s. So when I was reading through this, it sounded a lot like what happens uh, today, you know, when the media would receive letters or emails or information. But in some ways, in the late 1800s, I really didn't think much of, of like letters being received by 
by media outlets. It just doesn't seem like the, right. the time period. So, sort of predated that. Sort that. Of yeah. yeah. But letters were received by media outlets from a writer or possibly even writers claiming to be the murderer because this was a very popular case. There were a lot of people who were aware of what was going on and several people who actually claimed to be the killer in writing. The name Jack the Ripper originated in one of the letters, actually, that was sent to the media. That's how all of that came about. The letter was believed to have been a hoax, but may have been written by journalists to increase interest in the story to sell more newspapers. So while this was going on, there were, uh, like I said, a lot of these letters coming out. And, and some of them may have actually been just the newspaper sort of perpetuating their own stories and trying to hype it up so that they could you know, sell more newspapers. But there was at least one letter from the killer that was believed to be authentic. So from the thousands of letters that poured in, there was at least one that they believed might have actually been from Jack the Ripper. The letter was dubbed the From Hell Letter and was received by George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Uh, this was a group of vigilante volunteers. And when I read this, I, I thought, you know, like the super friends, you know, <laughs> there are kind of people out there, people in the neighborhood. It's kind of more like a neighborhood watch sort of thing, but they were called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. And the letter, when it was delivered, the one that they thought was from the killer that might actually be authentic, came with half of a human kidney attached with it, supposedly taken from one of the victims. Could not. <laughs> I mean, I've seen- That's I've, creepy. I've seen a few scary movies, Jason. And, and this sounds like the premise of the worst of the worst. I mean, this is this is where a lot of that inspiration, I think, is probably drawn from. So I'm going to read the letter. It's a short letter, and it's um, it's very interesting. The letter read, and at the very top where you should be signing where the letter came from, like the return address, the author just wrote, from hell. So crazy. <laughs> that's, that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. So he said, from hell, Mr. Lusk, sir. I send you the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Man, I, I just had a chill that That's, went right up my arm. Yeah, that is just, <laughs> man, that is just so like in control. And I think that's that's what makes it so creepy is that it's like just, you know, whoever wrote that is, is so articulate and just yeah. kind of in control of the situation and just seems like that was totally normal for someone yeah. to do that and, and write a letter like that. That's what's really weird. It, it sounds like something out of a book, just like a oh, fiction, yeah. mystery, horror, suspense, thriller type novel. It reminds me of Hannibal Lecter. It does. I mean, that's just the, absolutely the, the wording of it and kind of just the, the ease yeah. from which, you know, uh, those words are said. That's, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. Terrifying stuff. Now, at least a thousand of these letters were received by the police dealing with the case. However, the from hell letter was distinct because it was written at a much lower literacy level than the others. Now, I, I couldn't convey this through just reading the letter out loud, but there were all kinds of misspellings. There were grammatical mistakes. But the interesting thing about that, though, is that scholars have debated whether this was deliberate because the killer included many misspellings and the grammatical errors in the writing, so that was apparent, but did some things that only uh, a knowledgeable person would do, such as using the silent K in knife, as well as the H in while, 
So some scholars debate whether mm-hmm. he was intentionally it's on purpose, yeah, trying to, like, writing it at a lower level, yeah, yeah, to kind of throw off his sin a little bit because he was doing these things that were sort of grammatically at a higher level. That if you did have these low grammatical skills, you wouldn't necessarily observe, right. uh, such as the silent letters in in these words. And like I said, there's been hundreds of suspects over the years. Pretty much anyone who was in the area at the time has been labeled as fair game. Uh, there's no one today living who was present at the time this actually happened. So, uh, however, there have been several groups who have sort of picked this case up and they've attempted to solve it on their own. Uh, a few hints point toward who the killer may have been, although nothing is definitive. For example, killings were only committed on weekends and public holidays and within a few streets of each other. So this kind of indicates that the killer was employed somewhere and lived locally because the killings were only happening on the weekends when possibly he wouldn't have been at work and also had some spare time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, had a little bit of spare time. Uh, and some believe the killer was an educated upper-class man, possibly a doctor or an aristocrat. This theory plays on people's fear of medicine and doctors and the belief that the rich exploit the poor. So there's there's a lot of information out there. There was actually a journal that was produced uh, a few years ago that I read about as well. And uh, the le- the journal was supposed to have been a confessional of who Jack the Ripper was, and it was accepted by a lot of folks. But later on, the, the man who produced the journal, along with his wife, said that it was completely a hoax. Now, some people don't believe that. They think that it was a massive cover-up for whatever reason, you know, 100 years later, hmm. you know, trying to cover up this mystery. You know, others others took it at face value because the man did say that he fabricated the journal and, uh, you know, that it wasn't was not authentic. But to this day, it is still a story that is told far and wide. It's still something that is unsolved. And I don't know. Do you think, Jason, uh, something this old that we'll ever be able to to figure it out? Is the is the trail too cold to figure out who Jack the Ripper may have been? I mean, probably. Honestly, at, at this point, I mean, because you know, I can't imagine really any any more evidence that's going to come to light that they right. don't already have. I mean, unless there's just some letters that they've not found, and there's like just a big massive confession they can prove it was. You know that the the dating on it's correct, and right. you know, it to me, I think it would just pretty much take a miracle in order to really ever fully prove who this was at this point. Yeah. I mean, because you know, again, this is the late eighteen hundreds, and here we are, twenty twenty. We still haven't figured it out. I probably just don't see it happening. Probably too far off the mark. Probably to, too far to off. Figure it out. Yeah, probably so. So, Jason, what's up next? What unsolved mystery should we explore? Well, Shannon, I'm going to talk about one of the biggest mysteries uh, in the last hundred years, and that is a little uh, location known as the Bermuda Triangle. I've heard of this. You've heard of that? Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan of triangles. I like Doritos. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know, so. Now, is this uh, an isosceles triangle, a right triangle? Uh, I'm not a mathematician. I don't know. I just know it's a triangle. <laughs> okay. Three sides. <laughs> just avoid it, whatever gotcha. it is. Yeah. Uh, so many people have heard of the uh, Bermuda Triangle, but just to be clear on its location, if you were to look at a flat map of the world, the Bermuda Triangle is the triangular area between uh, Miami, Florida, Puerto Rico, and, of course, Bermuda. One thing to keep in mind is that this is one of the most heavily traveled flight and shipping lanes in the world. So people who do not buy into the mystery of the triangle simply say that since there's so much traffic in that area, accidents are much more likely to happen. And, you know, Shannon, I can agree with that in theory. But that aside, there have been some pretty strange 
things that have occurred yeah. <laughs> over the years. So uh, I've taken a few notes here on just some of the, the highlights. And again, this is not an all-inclusive list, but just, just some highlights of some interesting events that have occurred uh, in that area. In 1881, a ship named the Ellen Austin came upon an, an, an abandoned ship floating in this area. The Ellen Austin sent several of its crew members to board the ship, and then the plan was to sail both ships back to New York. So you have this boat in the water. They come across another boat with no crew in it. It's empty. So some mm-hmm. of the crew members from this boat, from the, the uh, Ellen Austin, they go over to the other boat, so they're going to sail both boats back to New York. The only thing is that the abandoned ship vanished with the new crew that had boarded the ship only hours earlier. And the ship nor the crew was never heard from again. Man, that is bizarre. (laughs) And that's strange. That is so weird. I mean, so you have, you know, I'm assuming these two boats really close to each other. And all of a sudden, I guess they turn around and it's gone. Oh, and even and, and even the new crew member. So so really two crews. So the, the original crew that was with the, the boat vanished. They found the boat. They put a few guys over on it to kind of sail it home. And then the whole thing's gone. Yeah. Wow. So that was in yeah. 1881. The next event occurred on March 4th, 1918, when a U.S. Navy ship called Cyclops, Cyclops vanished off the face of the earth. The ship nor the 309 crew members were never seen again. This event is still the single largest loss of life in the history of the U.S. Navy not related to combat. The Cyclops was carrying a full load of manganese ore and was heading back toward the U.S. And many people think that this tragedy was connected to World War I. And although not proven, the ship and its crew were destroyed by an enemy of the U.S. So, uh, you know, when this happened, there wasn't a battle going on. Uh, The the ship was by itself. uh, And for really no reason whatsoever, the ship vanished. They never found any crew members. They never found one piece of the boat. And Hmm. it was just gone. Uh, Another strange event happened in 1921 when a five-masted schooner, which is a a relatively small boat, like a private kind of boat, was discovered on the shore in North Carolina. The schooner had apparently been around the area of the Bermuda Triangle earlier, uh, and at at that time the crew vanished, and several days later the schooner crashed off the shore of North Carolina. Again, no crew members ever recovered. And perhaps the strangest incident occurred in December of 1945. Flight 19, which was a training flight involving uh, five U.S. Navy torpedo bombers, disappeared while flying in the Bermuda Triangle region. The planes left Fort Lauderdale, Florida, but never returned to base. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you have five Navy planes that go off on an exercise. They never come back. Navy officials claim that the planes most likely crashed at sea due to a navigational error and simply ran out of fuel. Okay, so that's that's strange enough, that's, right? That's one theory, yeah. But Shannon, here's the kicker. The Navy sent a rescue aircraft called the PBM Mariner, which had a 13-person crew to look for the survivors of the five missing planes. And get this, the rescue plane also vanished into thin air. No wreckage, no crew members ever found. Okay, that's not right. <laughs> That's so that, weird, man. That's the one that kind of gives you a little bit uh, – You get a little bit of a pause. A reason, think, yeah. Because, there's something going on Yeah, here. so you have five planes that vanish without a trace. You send out a 13-person crew to look for them. They don't come back. 
So that's at least 18 people that just vanished on two different, you know, occasions, really. Sort of the same event, but hours later, obviously, and never heard from again. You think all these people are just hanging out on an island somewhere, (laughs) you know, (laughs) drinking uh, juice out of coconuts, (laughs) hanging out on the beach. (laughs) Kind of grilling shrimp down below (laughs) or whatever. They think we're all dead. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, Next, in December of 1948, a commercial aircraft, a Douglas DC-3, a number NC-16002 to be specific, disappeared while on a flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami, Florida. So it was literally flying the edge of the the Bermuda Triangle. And again, the wreckage nor the 32 people on board the plane were ever found. Man, when you start talking about numbers like that, I mean, I could see... You know, some sort of hoax with a couple of people who have right. bought into that. Oh, yeah. And, and they think that's fine. But when you talk about, you know, 30 people, 13 people, 300, this, 300, yeah, 300 people. Yeah. It's just it. there's there's something there. I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but that is just that's yeah. so strange. And I mean, and just just in these events that I have listed, uh, that represents a loss of life of at least 375 people. Goodness. Over a span of. You know, 60 years, you know, roughly, maybe 70 years. You know, many people believe that UFOs are involved. I'm sure you've heard heard stories uh, that some people think it's some sort of gigantic sea monster, you know, that's at play. Others think that some kind of uh, interdimensional, uh, you know, portal that sort of defies the laws of physics and you're going <laughs> into an alternate universe. Now, is any of that based on anything or is it just kind of speculative? I think it's speculative. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking it was Godzilla, but I have nothing to base that on. But I'm just going to throw well, my hat in the ring. Well, it, well, it could be. <laughs> it could be. And then, you know, while others believe that uh, the cause is, is really just due to strange and erratic weather. That just basically, like, you know, freak storms are to blame for all this. Uh, So regardless of the reasoning, uh, the Bermuda Triangle is for sure shrouded in mystery. It is. Yeah. And that's another one that I read a lot about growing up. And I just recall just being so perplexed by and thinking, I'm never getting on a plane Never getting on a boat, you know. There, if this kind of thing happens, then uh, that's not for me. Maybe I'm more of a walker. That's I right. <laughs> I, just, I just want to make sure that the uh, the Bermuda Triangle is not connected to Lake Cumberland. When I that's when right. I was a kid, is you know, is this an offshoot of Lake Cum- or of, of the Triangle in any way? Because as long as it's not, we're okay. I'll I'll ski and fish on this. That's right. This water. There you go. So Shannon, what do you have up next for us? The next mystery I have is related to another person, uh, a character called. Banksy. So the background, a little bit of background on Banksy. Banksy is an, is an anonymous England-based street artist, vandal, political activist, film director, etc., active since the 1990s. Busy man. Busy. Very busy. <laughs> you know, directing a few movies here, you know, vandalizing properties on the side. <laughs> when he can. When he can, you know, just, just kind of getting things done. <laughs> Um, but Banksy is famous for creating these satirical street arts uh, that combine dark humor. It's usually graffiti, and it appears all around the world in, in all sorts of different places. Uh, subjects of the art include anti-war, anti-capitalist, and anti-establishment sentiments, with pictures often uh, including rats, apes, policemen, soldiers, children, and the elderly. So he's got a range, you know, okay. he, he could draw a few things. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Banksy displays his art on publicly visible surfaces, such as walls and self-built physical prop pieces. 
And I'm assuming he does most of this under the cover of darkness because the images will not be there one day and then just like crop circles. The next morning, <laughs> the next there, morning there they are. There they are. Banksy's name and identity remain unconfirmed and the subject of a lot of speculation. Hence, it is an unsolved mystery. But he has given several interviews. And you may say, well, how in the world does that work? There are a few people who know who Banksy is. He has a publicist, for example. <laughs> he has a, a lawyer, and uh, he actually has an agency that verifies after the fact whether artworks are his or not. So I guess he, he clues okay. them in, you know. So so that way there there can't be any people who are imitating him and going out and painting things, and then they'll the, you know the media will credit it to Banksy because this organization will say, well, no, Banksy said that's not his, or well, yes, Banksy called last night. <laughs> said he did paint that uh, gigantic rat on the side of the, the He had bridge. a few hours to kill, so <laughs> That's yeah. right. So in a 2003 interview with a man named Simon Hattonstone of The Guardian, Banksy is described as, quote, white, 28, scruffy casual, jeans, t-shirt, a silver tooth, silver chain, and silver earring. So I can just picture this guy. I can now. A little bit. That kind of brings <laughs> it to life a little bit. That's, that's Banksy. He began as an artist at the age of 14, was expelled from school. And again, all of this leaks out because there's a few people who know who he is and they can, they can verify these facts. He was expelled from school and served time in prison for petty crime. I imagine such as vandalizing buildings, <laughs> you know, what would later become his uh, most notable occupation. <laughs> uh, according to Hattonstone in the interview, quote, anonymity is vital because graffiti is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> is that the actual quote, really? Th- that's, that's the actual quote. <laughs> so if one were to ask Fair Banksy, enough. you know, why, why do you need to remain anonymous? Why not show your face? He, he would simply answer, well, because what I do is, is highly illegal. <laughs> And I would go to jail. (laughs) That's right. So uh, a smart man is Banksy, you know. Uh, But one of the most notable things that has happened with Banksy outside of just the random artworks appearing around the world happened in October 2018 when one of Banksy's works titled Balloon Girl was sold in an auction at Sotheby's in London for $1.04 million. So it shows up. It goes to auction. It's in a frame. It's a picture of a little girl in a balloon, and um, someone buys it. You know, they think, this is cool. You know, I am I like Banksy. I like what he's doing. <laughs> I may be, uh, you know, able to buy this art because apparently I have $1.04 million <laughs> to spend. Uh, so, so it sells. You know, again, this was just last year as of this recording. Shortly after the auctioneer's gavel dropped and the painting was sold, an alarm sounded inside of the picture frame, Uh-oh. and the canvas passed into a shredder hidden within the frame, partially shredding the picture. So if you can just imagine yourself as an onlooker here, you're at this really high-class <laughs> London auction house. Someone has just purchased this picture for over a million dollars. The gavel falls to announce the sale has happened, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> rear, rear, rear. And then shred it just the the frame just starts shredding the picture. I mean, it's crazy. How how do, how do people work this stuff out? <laughs> I mean, they would they would have to think that this is like a, a joke of some sort. Yeah, you know, not not like just a, a well thought out 
right. joke on behalf of the artist. I mean, you yeah. would think that maybe like the, the actual auction you know company would have done that or something. I don't yeah, know. I mean, what would a, you think? A just, gimmick to, yeah. to you know. But I, I'm I'm imagining the person standing there that just paid a million dollars for this work, they're like, wait, and they're wait, sort of what? on the hook for it a little bit. Uh, shortly thereafter, Banksy posted a picture of the shredding on Instagram, and he just simply wrote the caption, "Going, going, gone." <laughs> so he was having fun with it a little bit. And yes, Banksy has an Instagram account. <laughs> In case you were wondering, wow. you go check him out. Uh, the buyer went through with paying for the picture. So they actually said, you know what? This is kind of cool. And apparently I can spend a million dollars on cool. So I'm going to go ahead and buy the picture. But it's projected that the worth of the picture actually doubled due to the event and the circumstances oh, I can surrounding see that. what happened. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, shred away, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a man seen filming the art during its shredding, uh, shredding has been suggested to be Banksy. So you can find this video on YouTube if you just look up Banksy, Balloon Girl, Shredding, Auction House, any of those sort of things. You can actually watch this event because someone, perhaps Banksy, filmed it. I need to do that. I've not actually watched. It's pretty cool. I'll be honest. I, I wasn't really familiar with that, with, with this particular topic or Banksy until uh, you know, we were talking about yeah. that a little bit earlier. That's that's really interesting. It is. It, and it's weird that in this day and age, you can have that level of anonymity. You know, it's kind of like Batman's out there on the loose and, and a few people know who <laughs> yeah. he is. It's not like He-Man, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's where, not where like everyone He-Man. should know who he is. <laughs> that's right. It's the same dude. It's the, <laughs> the same, same guy. He, he looks the same. Uh, he's exactly the same. Oh, but this guy doesn't wear a shirt. So. <laughs> He's he man, right? Uh, but Banksy, you know, he he exists. He he's a real guy, and uh, he he actually released a video on how the shredder was installed, and he indicated that the entire piece was supposed to have been shredded. It messed up, you know. And I don't know how long it was in there. I don't know how long the piece was floating around before it went to auction and with the picture frame and the mechanical parts and all that. But apparently when it did go to auction, he was in attendance. He pushed a button. I'm assuming that's what most people believe. And the shredder just started up. Sotheby's released a statement saying Banksy didn't destroy an artwork in the auction. (laughs) He created one. (laughs) That's true. You know, and and he kind of doubled its value. Now, there there have been a few suspects uh, around who Banksy might actually be. Uh, Some believe that Banksy is a man named Robin Gunningham, who was born on July 28th in 1973. So here's some of the reasons they believe that. Uh, First of all, several of Gunningham's associates and former schoolmates have corroborated this rumor. And in 2016, a study found that the incidents of Banksy's works correlated with the known movements of Gunningham. So where Gunningham was at? You know, Banksy would show up. You know, it's kind of like where Bruce Wayne is. Batman's Batman's there, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, Lawyers representing Banksy, which I find so comical. I mean, it's just (laughs) this guy, you know. Uh, But but the lawyers representing Banksy commented on this study, and but they did not suggest that the paper's findings were flawed. Another suspect is Robert Del Naja, aka Three D, frontman of the trip hop band Massive Attack. Okay. <laughs> so Delnaja has been a graffiti artist since the 1980s prior to forming the band uh, and has previously been identified as a friend of Banksy. So in the very least, he's if he's not Banksy himself, he's supposed to be in the inner circle. Another suspect, and this is the last one I have, is Jamie Hewlett, comic book artist and best known for the comic Tank Girl and the virtual band Gorillaz. Uh, Joanna Brooks, Banksy's publicist, because, of course, he has a publicist, <laughs> denied this claim and said that's that is incorrect. So it looks like we have a, a prime suspect here. 
for various reasons, but as of this recording, Banksy has yet to be identified, so we don't know who it is. So if I see a silver-toothed man <laughs> that looks artistic, <laughs> yeah, I need to call the authorities. So, so looks artistic. So what kind of vibe would he be putting out here? Would he have the, the spray can, or would he? I'm thinking a beret. Doing? <laughs> if I if I see someone walking around with a beret and a silver yeah. tooth. I got him. That's Banksy. I've got Banksy. Get over here. Get over here, buddy. <laughs> Robert right. Robert Gunningham. Is it Robin <laughs> Gunningham? <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> All right. So, Jason, uh, who, what's up next on our list of unsolved mysteries? Have you ever heard of the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper? I have, but just recently. All right. D.B. Cooper is the alias of a man who boarded a Northwest Airlines plane at the Portland International Airport on November 24th, 1971. He purchased a one-way ticket on the flight, uh, Flight 305, bound for Seattle, Washington. Cooper was later described as a quiet man in his mid-40s wearing a black business suit and was very unassuming. An interesting note, uh, the waitress remembered that whenever he boarded, uh, boarded the plane that he ordered a bourbon and soda before the flight took off. So shortly after takeoff, Mr. Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, a flight attendant, on board. Miss Schaffner at first did not read the letter, but then Mr. Cooper looked at her and was quoted as saying, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. My goodness. That generally wow. gets people's attention, right? Oh, yeah. On a plane, especially. <laughs> yeah. So Schaffner then asked to see to, to see the bomb. And according to her, Mr. Cooper opened up his briefcase and revealed eight red cylinders with multiple wires attached to them all. Oh, man. So after Ms. Schaffner saw the bomb, uh, or at least what was believed to be a bomb, Mr. Cooper told her to tell the pilots that he demanded $200,000, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by at the Seattle airport upon arrival. Okay, so, you know, the, <laughs> well, so the plane just sort of took off. Four parachutes. So who, who's he taking with him? Uh, just himself, but apparently he wanted backups. Okay. He wanted he he, he wanted back. He wanted to make make really sure. That's exactly right. Okay. Really sure. The, the pilot William Scott uh, contacted the Seattle Tacoma Airport, uh, which then notified the FBI. The plane literally circled for two hours to allow the FBI and other officials to get the money and the parachutes and the fuel truck ready. During these two hours, the passengers were told that there was a minor technical difficulty at the airport and their landing would be delayed for a while. They never knew that they had been hijacked. Oh, man. The entire time. That's wild when you really think about that. But, I mean, I guess it was absolutely necessary, though. Can you imagine just uh, the captain coming on? Uh, Attention, everyone. (laughs) One of you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess they had to do what they had to do. Right. So during the time that they were circling in the air, Mr. Mr. Cooper actually ordered a second bourbon and soda and paid for the drink and gave a tip. Of course he did. (laughs) It was a good tip. Because that's what psychos do. Right. right? (laughs) At 5.24 p.m., the pilot notified Mr. Cooper that his demands had been met. And at 5.39, the plane landed safely. After the money and the parachutes were hand-delivered to a stewardess, Mr. Cooper motioned that the passengers could exit. After the plane was refueled, it lifted off, and Cooper told the pilots to fly toward Mexico City, but he had some specific directions. First, the plane could only go 115 miles per hour, which is way slow. Yeah, that's super slow. Some of those uh, newer planes, I don't know about the 70s, but they they go six or 700 miles an hour. Yeah, I I mean, this is basically just gliding 
yeah. along, you know, at, at 115 miles per hour. Second, it could only fly and could get no higher than 10,000 feet, okay. which is well below what they normally yeah. you know, will fly at. And lastly, some of the landing apparatus had to be down as they flew. So this was these were three of his demands as he basically told them, you're flying me to Mexico City. So at this point, the plane had landed. All the, pa- the They had given him the money and the parachutes. They had refueled the jet. The passengers were allowed to exit. And then uh, he and the pilots took back off uh, toward Mexico City, you know, I mean, is what he told them after they got airborne. Huh. And the pilot quickly told him that due to these conditions, the, the, low, you know, the low altitude and uh, the, the reduced speed, uh, that they could not make the flight all the way to Mexico City, that they would have to stop in Reno, Nevada to refuel. And so Cooper agreed. So during the flight, the pilots were in the cockpit and, and uh, Cooper was just in the, they were, he was just on board, just kind of walking around. So during the flight, a total of five different aircraft tailed the, hij- <clears throat> the hijacked plane, but tried to keep enough distance so that they were not visible from Cooper's plane. Right. Yeah. At approximately 8 p.m., the pilot noticed a sudden depressurization light uh, c- come on and the plane began to rock back and forth a little inside the cabin. So although the pilots were forbidden to leave the cockpit due to, you know, Cooper's directions, they pretty much knew that he had jumped from the plane at this time. Oh, that my was, gosh. That was, you know, that he had, you know, pretty much. He just jumped out. He just jumped out. Yeah. The plane landed in Reno at 10.15 p.m. and was met with an army of FBI, state police, and Reno police officers. At the time, the pilots noticed uh, the difference in the in the pressure in the cabin that they were flying above the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. So they told them, whenever we the lights came on and we and we felt that movement in the plane, we were flying above the Lewis River, which again is located in southwestern Washington. So naturally, that's where the FBI you know began to look uh, right. for Cooper. But to this day, DB Cooper has never been found. Man. Has never been found. <laughs> That's incredible. And it's the only unsolved uh, hijacking case of an American aircraft uh, in history that they that they have no idea who he really was. Uh, however, there was one piece of evidence that is concrete. In February of 1980, so this would have been about nine years later after this event, yeah. a young boy found 290 $20 bills that were still wrapped up in bands along the shore of a river. So 290 $20 bills. The money was given to the FBI, which confirmed the serial numbers matched those of the ransom money that was given to D.B. Cooper at the airport nine years earlier. Oh, man. So one would assume that Cooper did not survive the jump, or else why would he leave so much money behind? Uh, But again, nobody was ever found. And to this day, it's one of the biggest mysteries in terms of like uh, a criminal or a crime that has occurred uh, in American history. Wow. So that's the case of D.B. Cooper. That's crazy. Now, was there ever an explanation given for the the landing gear having to be down and the the slow flight and the the low flying? Something to do with the jump? And and there were, I mean, I'm sure it was. And there were actually two or three other uh, details that he. basically required the pilots to, to do you know, while he's on the plane. One theory is that that he knew a lot about planes, that mm-hmm. when he got on the plane that he he spoke their language, and that just a right. normal person that would not know really anything about aviation would sure. know everything that he did. 
And so that was they had reason to believe that maybe he had some kind of a training or history background, yeah. or military or, or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, and of course, the, the planes that were uh, tailing his plane, like I said, they were far enough away that they didn't want to be detected mm-hmm. or at least be visibly seen out. So the they window. may not have been, been able to see him jump. And, no. And so yeah. that's 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 a, a fact that no one saw him jump. Huh. You know, not even the people in in the plane he was in saw him jump. So there was there was never an eyewitness that actually saw that. That's wild. Uh, yeah. So kind of an interesting story. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, Shannon, what do you have next? Well, Jason, I have something called the Wow Signal. Now, oh, have, you, have you ever heard of the I, Wow Signal? I have heard of this. Yeah. So, I sure have. Yeah. Now, this this is something I'd heard of. I didn't know until this episode that it was called the wow signal, but I was just sort of vaguely familiar with the story. This was very popular for a oh, time yeah. and continues to be popular. Yeah. It's cool. To this day. <laughs> it is cool. So the wow signal was a strong narrowband radio signal received on August 15th, 1977 by Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope. And at the time, it was being used to support the search for extraterrestrial life. So they just have this radio telescope pointed at the sky, and they are trying to pick up any signals or frequencies that might be coming from something extraterrestrial, something beyond the Trying to find ET. That's right. Yeah. So the signal that they picked up seemed to come from the direction of the Sagittarius constellation, and there was some evidence that the signal may have been extraterrestrial in nature. And, of course, that's the exciting part about this, right? This was no ordinary signal. They were listening for extraterrestrial life, hoping to receive something in return, and something came back. Astronomer Jerry R. Eman discovered the signal a few days after it was recorded by the Big Ear Telescope, and he was so excited that he circled the reading on the printout and wrote, Wow! next to it. So that's where we get the term, the the wow signal. The signal lasted for the entire 72-second window during which Big Ear was listening for it, because apparently what Big Ear would do is it would section off portions of the sky and listen for 72 seconds along this section, and then turn a little bit and listen for uh, 72 seconds on this section. And apparently for the entire 72-second window during which it was listening, the signal persisted, which I also find interesting as well, that it just sort of kept going on and on. And there's a few different origin theories for this. Uh, Eamon, uh, the original person who, who discovered this, once said, quote, we should have seen it again when we look for it 50 times. Something suggests it was an Earth source signal that simply got reflected off a piece of space debris, end quote. So originally they theorized that perhaps You know, there was a radio signal going out from Earth into space, and it was bouncing off some space debris. It got knocked back down to Earth, and then this satellite, this uh, radio picked it up. Well, uh, Eamon later recanted his statement when additional research indicated that it was unlikely the signal could have reflected off space debris in the exact manner in which it was received. So additional research was conducted, and they found that really it wasn't plausible that this signal could have, you know, reflect off the space debris because of the angles and the distance and the way it was received, et cetera. It just really didn't make sense that it was received uh, in that way. So that pointed to the possibility that it had to be extraterrestrial in nature. Additionally, it was unlikely the signal originated from Earth since it was transmitted at 1420 megahertz, which is within a protected spectrum. Or in other words, this is a bandwidth spectrum reserved for astronomical purposes. And terrestrial transmitters, meaning those on Earth, are forbidden to transmit at that at that range. Hmm. 
So, it, you know, in the very least, if it, you know, we would have to overcome a couple of obstacles if it was to just be reflection off space right. debris, you know, um, it would have had to have been lined up perfectly in an almost an implausible type of way. And it would have to be somebody transmitting radio signals illegally and having no idea, you know, that they wouldn't have been able to have planned to, to bounce the signal off the space debris and have it come back and be received by big ear. It's just at that moment, at that or moment, at those 72 seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They would have no way to have planned that. Right. So it had to be, you know, if it was someone on earth, it had to be just a freak accident of someone illegally transmitting fr- from the earth, which is very unlikely on both counts. In 2017, which was just a couple of years ago, uh, a man named Antonio Paris, a teacher from Florida, proposed that a hydrogen cloud surrounding two comets now known to have been in the same region of the sky as the wow signal could have been the source. This hypothesis was dismissed by astronomers, including members of the original Big Ear team, since the sighted uh, comets were not in the beam at the correct time. So they were able to go back and say, okay, so although these comets were in the sky, they were not in the the position of the beam, and therefore they couldn't have been what was picked up. Now, obviously, there's been some additional attempts to make contact because how exciting is that? You know, we we tried to radio out to ET, and perhaps ET radio back. We got a message back, right? <laughs> right. So the first thing everyone rushes to do is try to reproduce this and see if there's any way that they can reach out and, and get an additional message. So in 2012, on the 35th anniversary of the WOW signal, uh, Arecibo Observatory beamed a digital stream toward the area of the signal's location, which we established was somewhere around the Sagittarius constellation. The transmission consisted of 10,000 Twitter messages (laughs) solicited (laughs) for the purpose of the National Geographic Channel with the hashtag ChasingUFOs. There was uh, the National Geographic there. They put out a message and they asked people to, you know, if you could speak to the extraterrestrials, if you could send out a message in some way, what would you say to them? And just tag it with the hashtag chasing UFOs. And we're going to beam it out there (laughs) and see what happens. See what happens, right? And they did exactly that. Uh, The signal was beamed at roughly 20 times the wattage of the most powerful commercial radio transmitters. And it's out there floating somewhere in space. But unfortunately, thus far, there has never been a return signal. We have not been able to make additional contact with whoever or whatever was on the other side of the wow signal. Well, maybe E.T. just doesn't like Twitter. Hey, that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he's more of an Instagram type that's kind right. of guy. Yeah. So so Banksy's on Instagram, but aliens are not <laughs> but on E.T.'s Twitter. not on Twitter. This is a right. strange universe we live in, Jason. <laughs> so, Jason, what's up next? What's our last topic? Uh, yeah, the last topic is something called the bloop. So have you ever heard of this B-L-O-O-P, bloop? I had never heard of it until uh, today we were kind of discussing it, and it's uh, it's still kind of a mystery to me, so I'm really <laughs> interested to see what kind of info you have on it. It is pretty cool. Uh, the bloop was a low-frequency, high-amplitude <clears throat> high underwater sound that was detected by NOAA. And, of course, NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and they detected this sound in 1997. The sound originated in the South Pacific Ocean, uh, west of the southern tip of South America. The sound was detected by hydrophones, which were originally used to listen for enemy submarines. The sound was first reported to come from some sort of marine life. 
but it was way more powerful than any well sound that had ever been recorded. In fact, different hydrophones detected the same sound, even though the hydrophones, basically the microphones, were more than 3,000 miles away. Wow. So either they were super sensitive microphones or this, this thing was really big. Is, is that right? Yeah. And so basically to kind of put that in, I guess, terms that might, you know, a little more easily understandable. Imagine putting one of these microphones, for lack of a better terms, basically in the water, right? And you put it off the coast of California. And then you put another one off the coast of Virginia, let's say. And both of those microphones would have heard this sound that was made underwater. I mean, Man. that's <laughs> r- roughly the, the distance. That's crazy. And so, you know, many people at first said that, that the sound uh, sounds like something that's coming from something alive, like it's a marine animal, marine life sound. And then, you know, after a couple of years, basically, uh, science has said that the sound must have come from some kind of like a, a glacier shift. Or something, uh, some kind of seismic sound, maybe something with the plates, you know, under the ocean. Yeah, uh, that that was my first thought. I thought, well, maybe it's uh, the shifting of like tectonic plates or something under the water. Yeah, Yeah. and and that does make sense. Uh, But experts that deal with sound still maintain that the characteristics of that sound, I guess if you know what you're listening for, that that comes from something biological. Like there was that something, it, it's a creature that has made that sound. It's not just ice breaking off or rocks, you know, sliding against one another. I love that theory, but that's also terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also, yeah. The, the idea of it when it first hits you, you're kind of like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, yeah. maybe there's a, there's a giant sea creature. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you think Jaws was bad. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, Shannon, I think we have the audio file. Uh, for this sound. However, this file has been sped up uh, 16 times the normal speed. Okay, so the sound you are about to hear is actually much slower and much more pronounced than what you're actually hearing. But here is the bloop uh, sped up 16 times. Now, I know what you're thinking, that that wasn't anything major, right? <laughs> that was just kind of just a sort of a basic sort of small sound. Right, yeah. But you have to really kind of put that in terms to under to, to more, you know, better, I guess, understand that. Is that the fact that several microphones picked that, that sound up from over 3,000 miles away underwater, number one, is fascinating. And then number two, you have to remember that that particular sound has been sped up 16 times. So That's right. If yeah. you were to listen to that slower. Been way drawn out. It's, yeah. And yeah. it, it sounds uh, dramatically different. Uh, I wish I could have found an audio file with that, but but I cannot. That was the audio file that you find most often. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when you're looking for that, so you know, if for no other reason, again, people that uh, work with uh, sound, just the fact that they that they're just determined that they basically just and that they're adamant that 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 sound was produced by something living. Uh, regardless of what anyone says, uh, like you said a while ago, that's just sort of terrifying. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. I mean, that has so many implications. That's that's just so weird and bizarre. And, you know, there, there's a large p- portion of the ocean that I don't think has ever been explored. So it's uh, it's kind of crazy that perhaps there could be something, something down there. That's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So think about that the next time that you're, you know, skiing or whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
It will do. You better hope the bloop don't get you. That's right. That's what it is. Well, Shannon, I think that's uh, that is a wrap for me on all these unsolved mysteries. Yeah, this was a, f- a fun episode. Uh, a good one to research. Brought back a lot of memories <laughs> of reading yeah. through these mysteries and, and things. So we just want to thank all of our listeners who uh, are joining in week to week. Uh, we encourage you if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. Please leave us a review and a rating, and most of all, uh, share us with someone else. And we appreciate everyone who is already on board. You can catch us on social media with the handle at SlapdashPod. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Take care, everyone. Thank you.